But if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take them out, turn them on, and join me in the Old Testament book, the book of Joel. Uh, you need to be careful as you're flipping through the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible, you might fly right past it. Uh, it's not the shortest book in the Bible, but it's pretty short. And so we have started, we started last week a sermon series through the minor prophets, um, what are known as the Twelve According to the ancient Hebrew tradition, it was one collection uh, that they kept together. And so last week we looked at the book of Hosea and the beautiful display of God's grace and the gospel there. And we will continue just by turning the page and looking at the book of Joel. Uh, we will uh, be looking around through it. And so hopefully you can bounce back and forth a little bit today. But in starting, as I was studying through the book of Joel and listening to several things and reading, and I listened to a podcast in which a professor, uh, Dr. Paul House, was interviewed about the book of Joel, and he made an interesting comment about the different audiences that he is beginning to uh, teach and uh, the generation gap that exists. And granted, it's a bit of a generalization, and maybe you will find this to be true of yourself. But he is finding it increasingly true that of the older generations, the generations that are potentially more comfortable or who have grown up in a religious tradition where they are comfortable with the notion of uh, and a style of preaching of hell, fire, and brimstone, there's a generation of Christians that are very comfortable with the notion, if you will, of God's judgment. And as a matter of fact, the, an older generation has adopted the mindset that they understand my starting point is I am a sinner deserving of God's judgment upon my life. And so oftentimes what that looks like is that these individuals are convinced of God's judgment upon them, and so they spend their lives somehow trying to be better. You will hear the, in interviews with individuals that might be in this group and asking the question, why is it that you should go into heaven if you're interviewed by God when you're there? They'll begin rattling off all of the good things that they did to somehow gain God's favor or offset how bad they actually are. But he's finding it to also be true that on the other hand, there is another perspective. It is not new. It is actually rather old, but it is beginning to take hold of a younger generation in which their beginning position is not that I am a, a sinner deserving of God's judgment, but it's instead, I'm a sinner, but I'm not really that bad of a sinner. In other words, I have to do something bad enough in order to justify God sending me to hell or judging. Of course, there's a place called hell for people like Hitler or Stalin or Osama bin Laden, but I'm not that bad yet. And so there's this generation gap. On the one hand, there are those who have no real fear of the Lord, and on the other hand, there are those who honestly have much too much fear of the Lord. Those that are convinced that they are deserving of God's judgment, we oftentimes have to actually spend a great deal of time convincing them not only that God's judgment is real, but that God's character is first and foremost defined by his mercy. And we have to point out and convince this generation that is comfortable with hellfire and brimstone that God is a God who is merciful and kind and full of steadfast love and relenting over disaster. On the other hand, the generation that thinks that they're not quite that bad needs to hear that God has a standard. That standard isn't good enough. That standard isn't, I'm not that bad yet, but God's standard is actually perfection, and they fall far short of it. And we might find ourselves, honestly, if we think about our day-to-day -day life, we fluctuate back and forth. Where on the one hand, one moment we might be living with too much of a fear of the Lord, 
And on the other hand, we might be living as though God doesn't exist at all. And that I am the God of my own life. And what we need is to strike a balance between understanding God's presence and a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord and living that out. And that's why Joel's proclamation of the day of the Lord is helpful and necessary for us. What we'll see as we look through the book of Joel is that Joel desires that we understand that the day of the Lord is actually a double-edged sword and that repentance is the key to being on the right side of it. That call to repentance we can see in Joel chapter 2. It's the turning point of the entire book and what we'll focus on and build towards as our climax this morning as well. As Joel declares in Joel chapter 2 verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your many blessings. Your word is chief among those. You've not left us without your word to guide and guard us. Lord, I desire more than anything else to preach your word faithfully, to declare your grace and your goodness, your mercy and your truth, but to declare all of you that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who relents over mercy. But Father God, you are also a God of justice, and you will not allow the wicked to go away unpunished. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to a deep understanding of your whole self. Father, the parts that we long to run to and the parts that would, Heavenly Father, in our sin drive us away. So, Lord, I pray that you would warm our hearts, that you would break up our fallow ground, as Hosea commanded us last week, that we might see your grace and your mercy, your goodness and your truth. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that in all things you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The day of the Lord is a double-edged sword, and repentance is the key to being on the right side of it. As we will see, and it might be a little bit repetitive as we're working through these 12 minor prophets, that all of the prophets, whether it be these minor prophets or the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, they all follow a very similar pattern, and it just kind of is on repeat. What we find in their writings is there is sin on the part of the people. There is the proclamation of God's judgment upon the people. There is an invitation to repentance and the promise of hope if they will um, repent and believe, and they will return to the Lord. It's this constant repeat. And so, as we're preaching through the 12 minor prophets, just get ready. You're going to hear the same word over and over and over again. Why? Because we need it over and over and over again. The repetition is what embeds something deep inside of our heart, like we are dough that needs to be kneaded on and brought to that moment. As we preach through the minor prophets, we are going to hear that same repeated pattern. There is sin, and that God's judgment comes upon sin, but there is grace and mercy for those who will repent. And so that is the same kind of pattern that Joel takes up in Joel. However, Joel doesn't begin with a specific sin of the people. He just assumes that it's there. Unlike Hosea that we saw last week who takes the people of God to task for their idolatry, unlike Amos that we will see next week takes people to task for their 
injustice, Joel picks up right smack dab in the middle of God's judgment. If you look in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, Joel commands the people, hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in our days or in the days of our fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. We pick up right smack dab with Joel in the middle of a national crisis. And as you read through chapter 1, what you will find out is that there seems to be this massive and unheard of plague of locusts that have descended upon the nation of Israel. And they have devoured everything. A plague of locusts isn't that intimidating to us in this world today because we have realized in our strength and ingenuity and by God's grace as we understand the world and science, we have come up with pesticides and ways that we can minimize the impact of locusts, especially here. But you can go to other places around the world and you can listen to testimonies in the past when we haven't had those, um, those means available to us. And what a, a plague of locusts has the ability to do is destroy livelihoods and consume the wealth of nations. I read one, I think, specific study that mentioned, I think it was back in the 1980s, there was a plague of locusts that descended upon Africa, and it ate enough food in a matter of weeks to feed a million people for a year. When a plague of locusts came upon an agricultural society, it consumed the very source of their wealth and their life. But in beyond that, we also find as we read through Joel's that Joel, that it's not just a plague of locusts, there is also a drought. We find animals that are crying out as they are dying beside, beside dried uh, stream beds. We're finding out that there is a, and because of the drought and because of the locusts, there is a famine. And so Joel actually begins at the beginning to command people to wake up the drunkards. Because why? Because even in the tavern, there's not enough wine. Because the grape harvest is destroyed. He commands the nation to come together. He says that the virgins are to weep. He says the priests are to mourn in sackcloth. Why? Because there's nothing for the people to even bring to the house of the Lord for the sake of grain offerings or lamb or sheep or, or bull offerings because the land is devastated. And as Joel looks around his world, he sees these events, particularly this natural disaster, he sees the hand of God at work. And he declares it to be the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the theme that runs throughout the book of Joel. It shows up explicitly five different times in these three chapters. The phrase, the day of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 15, the day of the Lord is near. Chapter 2, verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Joel 2 the sun shall be turned to thick darkness and the moon to blood there before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel 3, 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord appears again and again throughout this book. It's a theme that unites the whole thing, but the truth of the matter is it's a much broader biblical theme. It's a theme that throw, shows up throughout Scripture. And every time that it shows up, what we find is some common imagery. And that imagery is actually meant to remind us of the very first time that God manifested his presence among his people. The day of the Lord is fundamentally the arrival of God in the presence of his people. 
And the very first time that God does that is when God descends upon Mount Sinai as the people are gathered as Moses is preparing to go up to receive the Ten Commandments that we studied recently. And in Exodus chapter 19, what we find is this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. If you're familiar, if you're a a skilled Bible reader and you've been reading the Bible for years, some of that should immediately make your ears perk up. When you hear about the notion of a trumpet sound and blast, when you hear about darkness descending, when you hear about the earth trembling and quaking, all of a sudden there should be images that you have been introduced to throughout Scripture that makes you think about, oh, this is reminding me the Lord is here and among us. It should make us think we'll see about the day that Jesus was crucified. It should make us think we will see in the book of Joel of God descending upon his people. It should make us think about that ultimate day of the Lord when darkness descends and Lord comes to his people. The question, though, is what does the day of the Lord mean throughout Scripture? As we see it repeated throughout Scripture, we understand that there are actually many different days of the Lord. We understand, and the prophets understood, that there will be an ultimate day of the Lord. But they understand that that day of the Lord has signposts throughout human history that points us towards it. Whenever the Lord descends and meets with his people, two things happen. Leland Riken puts it this way, the term, the day of the Lord, sometimes used by the prophets to refer to any specific period of time in which the God of Israel intervenes in human affairs to save and to judge. Wherever we see the day of the Lord, we see God coming among his people, and when we see him coming among his people, he comes either in judgment or he comes in salvation. Something that we can think of, stop real quick before we move along as a point of application, is that when we come to the prophets, we need to read them wisely. Some of you thought as soon as we jumped into the prophets that we were going to get, and finally, Pastor Will's going to preach on the end times. Because a lot of times when we come to the prophets, we immediately think that the purpose of a prophet is to tell the future. They are, forth, they are foretellers. But what we find when we come to the prophets most frequently is not simply that they are declaring something that is to come, though we see that most often. What we actually find out is they were preachers. Real preachers. That their job was not to preach what necessarily is coming, but to preach all of the promises that God has made in the past. And so everything that they're talking about, they're actually pointing back to Scripture that they already have as they preach the covenant that God made with his people with Moses. If you want to be honest, if you want to understand the prophets, you need to understand the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, specifically the passages of Scripture that talk about the curses and the blessings or the benefits and the consequences of the breakdown or the success of the relationship of the people of God. Because when Joel examines his world and sees a plague of locusts and drought and famine come upon his people, he doesn't immediately, brothers and sisters, think it's finally time, we're done. 
He says, no, God said that this is going to happen. And the question is, what do we need to do to avert what's coming next? So many of us, I'll be real honest, we're living in a place of anxiety where the slightest news that comes across your Facebook feed leaves you panicked because, oh, Jesus is going to come tomorrow. And we don't know what to do with the day. The truth of the matter is the book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new that is under the sun. And it is a repeated cycle. And God has not left us helpless in the face of what is going on in the world around us. He's instead given us a pattern that we can follow and understand as we wait for the ultimate day of the Lord to come. And so as we read the prophets, we have to understand they are preachers exposing the word of God to us looking back on what God has already said throughout the Old Testament and applying it to the lives of their people in that day and as a result, applying it to ours as well. There are hints and there are hopes and there are prophecies about the future that are mysterious and embedded in them. But so many of us are spending our time navel-gazing and chasing our tail trying to figure out all of the different pieces of God's puzzle. And guess what? It's none of your business. God sees the picture that's on the box. Our job is to be the piece of the puzzle that he's designed us to be. But when we see the day of the Lord throughout Scripture, we see those two aspects, and we see those two aspects of the day of the Lord in the book of Joel. The day of the Lord means God's judgment. The day of the Lord brings judgment to God's enemies. The day of the Lord is not pleasant for everybody. When I was a child... And my brothers and I were goofing around. We'd be in the back of the house, and we'd be jumping off beds, and we'd do everything else. There was one sound that I feared more than anything else in the world at that exact moment. It was the footprints of my, footsteps of my father coming down the hall. And we knew that the visitation of our father was not going to be pleasant in that particular moment because we knew that what we were doing wasn't right. And when we see the day of the Lord, oftentimes throughout Scripture, we hear, we should hear, those footprints of discipline coming from God. But the picture that we oftentimes see in Scripture that leaves us sometimes confused and lends us towards that I don't know what to do with all of this cosmic imagery, when I look at the day of the Lord throughout the prophets, it sounds so weird because we're talking about the sky going black and the moon being turned to blood and all of these different things that show up in the book of Joel. Joel says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their light has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. That can oftentimes leave us in a tizzy. It can leave us scared. Chapter 2, verse 10, God warns, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shinings. Joel 2, 30 and 31, I will show wonders in the heaven on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel three fifteen, The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Joel three sixteen, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. What we have to understand is that the prophets were poets. And much of the prophets that we read is beautiful Hebrew poetry. 
Guess what the number one tool of poets is? Metaphors and similes and visual imagery that help us understand in this emotional kind of way the, the world that we are experiencing at this time. And what they are often, what all of this imagery actually points back to, because remember, these are preachers exposing to us the Word of God, is what we see in every single one of these passages of Scripture is the undoing of creation. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and what do you find? You find God in the beginning creating the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. At that particular time, there was no dry land. Instead, God creates dry land, which is the place that is hospitable for human life. We find that there is darkness and there is no light. We find that the earth is formless and without void. So throughout the prophets, as they begin to bring about and and begin to expose God's judgment, what they do is they immediately go back to Genesis chapter 1. And when they declare that there are earthquakes and the world is shaking, what is happening? All of human society is taking crumble. All that we have built and we have trusted in, our cities and our strongholds and our walls, they are breaking down and the world is being returned to a place of void and formlessness. The sun and the moon that gives us life and light all of a sudden is being pulled back and veiled over as God is returning the world to the darkness before he brought in its, creation, its, its light at the time of creation. Water is inhospitable to human life. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the ocean and the sea as places that are dangerous to people, which is why when you read in the book of Revelation and other prophecies, monsters and beasts coming out of the sea, they are always opposed to humanity. Why? Because the sea is a picture of God's judgment, a place that is inhospitable to humanity. And in creation, the world was covered, the, the, the world was the, the Lord is hovering over the deep, the faces of the waters. And so we oftentimes, when we come to prophecy, we see floods. As God is bringing back the water and he is bringing back the darkness and he is shaking the very foundations of the earth. God's judgment doesn't just merely look like that. It looks like armies. It looks like plagues. It looks like locusts. God's presence on that day of judgment or on, on the day of the Lord, is judgment and destruction of everything that we trust in other than God. And that is the warning that Joel sees as he looks upon these locusts that are destroying everything. He sees and hears and remembers that God has already declared that this will happen where and when you are disobedient. And so Joel declares to the people, this is what's going on. It is a sign of God's judgment. For what? That's an important point of application. Joel doesn't give us a what. So often, brothers and sisters, what we can do when it comes to judgment and when it comes to a call to repentance, when we see in Scripture that, jo- or that uh, Hosea specifically focuses on idolatry, when we see that Amos specifically focuses on injustice and the wrongs that we commit against one another, we have this tendency oftentimes to distance ourselves from repentance because that's not really a problem for me, so I can check out on this one. That's for so-and-so down the road. But when we come to passages of Scripture like this, when Joel just assumes that the, the destruction that is taking place in the lives of his people and his nation is a sign of a need for repentance, it is something that does not allow us to sit in our comfortable places. 
Instead, it is a constant reminder that you and I are people that should be living in a constant state of repentance, of turning to and trusting in the Lord. Joel's message is uniquely universal. We don't actually know when Joel was written. There are people that believe that it was written the first of all of the prophets, there are some that believe he was written, it was written he was the last of all of the prophets. There's some three to five hundred year gap between them. But the point is we don't necessarily need to know the explicit historical context because Joel's message is meant to be universally applicable. It confronts every person in covenant with the Lord. It calls every single one of us to a posture of repentance, to present ourselves before the Lord with all of our faults, with all of our flaws, both known and unknown. What repentance might look like for you is lamenting, submitting, returning to the Lord. Maybe it's not necessarily turning away from any specific life-dominating sin pattern, but simply recognizing that God is at work in my life. And I have neglected him for far too long. I have assumed that all of this stuff that is going on around me is just life's consequences, and I've ignored him. And instead, what I need to do is return to a very sensitive spirit to the presence of God. And that's the invitation from Joel to you and to me, is to return to the Lord. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all guilty of becoming callous and numb and deaf to his presence in our lives. But the day of the Lord doesn't just bring judgment on God's enemies. The day of the Lord also brings salvation to his people. We see all of these evils befall the people of Israel in God's discipline as the land is undone, as the fruit dries up, as the trees and the grass and the wheat are destroyed by the locusts and all of these different things. But after the climax in chapter 2 that we read earlier, we find that God begins to undo everything that he's undone. Everything that he has done, he reverts. And it's actually a really interesting study. If you want to look at chapter 2, uh, the end of chapter 2 versus uh, chapter 1, you will see that everything that takes place through chapter 1 is reversed at the end of chapter 2. And you can study that and you can see how there's this downward structure and upward structure. But needless to say, what we find is that because of the repentance of the people and the promise of the Lord, that God begins to restore the land and restore the people. The Lord, chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Chapter 2, verse 24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain vats that shall overflow with wine and oil. Chapter 2, verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. As God returns to his people, and as the day of the Lord comes, it can be a judgment against those who are opposed to him and who are far from him, but it is a tremendous blessing to others. What looks like defeat for the people looks like victory for those who are oppressing them. And what looks like victory for the people looks like defeat of the people that are oppressing them as well. But again, coming back to the language that Joel uses and trying to teach us to read the prophets a little bit better, just as the day of the Lord, God's judgment looks like an undoing of creation in the cosmic imagery and the metaphors that the prophets use, when the day of the Lord comes in salvation, we see a beautiful picture of a restoration of an Edenic kind of state. We see the trees restored. 
We see the gardens flourishing and planting. We see a safety and a security that is promised to the people of God. We see this land that is flourishing and well-kept, but we also see the presence of the Lord. When God planted Eden, it was a safe place. It was a secure place. It was a place that was given to the people for a purpose. But one of the unique marks of the, plant, of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 is the fact that if you'll remember, when God created the world, it was watered by a mist that would come out of the ground. There was no rainfall yet, and yet there was a river, and that river started in Eden and flowed to the four corners of the earth and was the source of life everywhere. When you get to the end of the Bible and you find the new creation that God has restored and God comes down and his dwelling is among his people and you see the beautiful city of the Lord, what do we find? We find a river of life flowing from the throne of God, and it waters the four corners of the earth. And around that river are orchards of trees of life. There's not just one. There's an entire forest full of trees whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. And when we look in the end, in the promise of the book of Joel, what we find is not only the presence of God, but we find that there will be a promise in Joel chapter 3, verse 18, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. There is this cosmic picture of God recreating this beautiful, safe, fragrant, wonderful, life-giving garden in which his people will dwell safely safely and securely with him. He promises them that one of the marks of his presence with his people is that, well, one of the marks of the day of the Lord and the promises of the day of the Lord is that he will be with his people. Joel chapter 2, verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Why? Because God is present with his people. And that's part of the picture of the day of the Lord and God comes in salvation as he returns to his people, not in judgment, but in salvation and in grace and in mercy. The key to it all is what we read earlier at the beginning in Joel chapter 2, the climax of the book, the return or the, the turning point of the book is God's command to the people, return with all of your heart. Not with false acts of worship, not by just tearing your clothes in this grand display of emotionalism in front of the Lord, but genuine, true repentance. Because the repentant are those who receive God's abundant grace. What makes the day of the Lord pleasant instead of painful is our heart of repentance towards the Lord. Turning towards Him. Repeatedly throughout the book of Joel, God encourages and calls his people. Joel calls out for the people to cry out and to declare a day of fasting in the presence of the Lord. And the people that repent receive God's grace and his mercy as God comes down. He defeats their enemies. You see, Joel kind of stands in this unique position. In Joel chapter 1, there is a very real crisis. The locusts are real and they're destroying everything. But when you get to chapter 2, the verbs change. In chapter 1, all of the verbs are present. This is going on now. Chapter 2 talks about this looming threat of an army that hasn't come yet. And Joel stands in this time between times as he says, guys, look at what's going on around us and understand that if we understand Leviticus and Deuteronomy and God's words, as we look at the natural disaster around us, it's only a prelude to the terror that is to come 
Because God's next threat and the next consequence, if we remain with our hearts hardened, is an army that's going to come in and destroy everything. To the point that they not only come over the walls, they come into your homes. And Joel calls upon the people. He says, we have a chance if we will return to the Lord. And the hope that shows up in Joel is that they appear to have done that. And when you get to the end of chapter 2, you find what is one of the most famous passages of Scripture, something that we referred to just a few weeks ago, as God gives a beautiful promise in verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When, the G- when Jesus came and he entered into that final day where he was tried, falsely confu- accused and convicted, and he hung on that cross, what happened? The sun went dark. The earth quaked and rocks split open. And the grave gave up its dead. The day of the Lord had come. And it was a day of the Lord that meant judgment for one and life for others. And because the Lord Jesus Christ endured that day of the Lord, the promise for all of those who cry out and call upon the name of the Lord is that we will be saved from the day of the Lord that is yet to come. Paul and Peter and the New Testament church, like Joel, stand in this time uniquely between times in which Jesus Christ has come and satisfied the wrath of God such that the day of the Lord need not be something that we fear and tremble against, but something that we can have hope towards because it means the restoration of all that sin has broken in our lives and in our world. And we stand like Joel to a world that is lost in its darkness and declare, repent. It's not too late. What will you do? And when he ascended, that was the time that this promise was finally fulfilled. Because if you'll remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came upon individuals and only for a certain period of time for a certain purpose. But Joel here prophesies a day that will come when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all of God's children, men and women alike, young and old alike. And when Peter stands up on Pentecost, he preaches this passage of Scripture. Do you not see the day of the Lord has come? And what Joel commanded, that all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Peter takes and they say, what must we do to be saved? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God who has come, who dwells among his people, and who calls us to repent and to believe 
and be saved. Brothers and sisters, repentance isn't, you've heard me say this before, repentance isn't merely the way into the Christian life. It's the way of the Christian life. And there is hope and there is salvation for each and every single one of us. If you are in this room and you are of that generation that says, you know what, I'm too bad for God. I've got to get myself cleaned up before I can come to church. I've got to get myself cleaned up before I can worship. I've got to all of these things. The day of the Lord is a a promise of hope for you because Jesus has already done everything. All you need to do is repent and believe and receive the grace and the mercy that he has in store for you. But if you're of that generation that says, you know what, I'm not really that bad, be warned. God will never leave those that he loves comfortable in their sin. And the day of the Lord could mean a day of judgment for you as you taste the consequences because of God's love. And the urgency is to repent and run to the Lord and receive the grace and the mercy that we all need again and again and again and again. The book of Joel, we've talked a lot about the day of the Lord and doom and darkness and everything else, but the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we need to learn the day of the Lord is a day of hope and salvation and glory for all of those who are in Christ. So my question to you is, how then do you need to respond? How can you draw near the Lord today? How can you ask God to give you clarity in the things that are going on in your life and lead you to repent and believe in the gospel? How can you, like Joel, be one who speaks hope and truth? He balances it. It's not just doom and gloom. We need to to take that to heart as we want to speak to a broken and dying world. That oftentimes what people need is not a finger wagging in their face, but an open arm saying, come. As Joel speaks, not only warning, but consolation and comfort. We need to find that balance. Do you have that balance as a mom, as a dad, grandparent, a teacher, son or a daughter of God? I invite you, would you take a moment, would you go before the Lord, would you cry out to the Spirit? Would you lead me in how it is that I can respond? How is it that I can receive grace, that I might give grace today?